Our scripture reading is going to be in two places, both Luke and Acts. Um, The Luke passage is on page 885, and the passage in Acts is on page 909. And maybe it'll be helpful to, to have a primer here. If you recall last week, we talked about how there are a number of commissionings that Jesus gave to his disciples, commissionings that fell after his resurrection, but before his ascension. And they are recorded in the Gospels and in Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts all record a commissioning by Jesus. And we studied John's commissioning, or the commissioning recorded in John, rather, last time. And this time we are going to look at Luke and Acts. The reason is because Luke is the one who wrote both of those, right? Luke wrote both of these books, Luke and Acts, and so he records two of the commissionings of Christ, um, one at the end of Luke and one at the very beginning of Acts. So as we read Luke, we'll be in verses 44 to 49, we read, Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these sayings, or these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now flipping over to Acts, you'll be jumping over the book of John. Luke picks up in his second book, a book about how this commission would ultimately begin to be fulfilled through the work of the disciples and the planting of the church and the spreading of God's word. And it's there that Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, or rather the disciples speak first, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he, Jesus, said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Well, in our second installment of our series on answering the call to missions, um, we have a second question for us. Last week, uh, if you were here, you know that the question we aimed to answer was, who is responsible for answering the call to missions? And the answer that we arrived at was, every Christ follower is responsible for answering the call to missions. To each one of us who has received the gift of the peace of Christ, it is our responsibility to take that peace out into the world and spread it to others. The question we aim to answer today is the question of where. Knowing that we are all called to take the gospel out into the world, where 
is it that we should take it? Where are we being sent by Jesus on mission? Where should we go to answer the call to missions? This is such an important topic for us to be talking about, uh, especially considering that the last two years have been populated with slogans such as, stay home, stay safe, or stay home, stay healthy, or how about stay home, save lives. Now, I have absolutely no intention of wading into whether or not you should have stayed home over the last two years, but my point is simply to say when those slogans have been so popular over the last few years, we need to ask ourselves a question of, of how that message has impacted our society in the long run. How will this message be embedded in the psyche of society and inform responses in the church and outside the church to potential danger in the future? We have to wonder if the church itself was immune to such slogans, or if our mission may be jeopardized by them. Could it cause the church to become a group of like-minded individuals who take as their utmost priority staying safe? Could the concern of saving our neighbors from potentially deadly viruses begin to take priority over our concern for the state of their souls? Can we come to the conclusion that not getting on a plane, not going to the nations, that that indeed is actually the most loving thing that could be done? Well, certainly we could see any of these scenarios playing out because they are playing out. They are playing out in churches all over the country. But it's in light of this present climate that we must be reminded that the disciples of Jesus Christ were known as apostles. Because the word apostle means sent ones. They were ones who had been sent by Jesus in the same way that Jesus had been sent out by the Father. It is essential to their identity that they are sent out on the one abiding mission that Jesus Christ was sent on. The one abiding mission of God to gather a people from every tongue and tribe and language to worship him. So we all are also sent by Jesus to bring his good news to others. So our commission, we need to understand that our commission is not one that we are to accomplish through Zoom. It is one that we are to accomplish by going out of our homes and into the world. But where should we go? Well, let's take our first text, Luke's, Luke chapter 24, verse 46 to 47. Let's start there. Luke tells us that Jesus said that it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, and here's where we get the answer, to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. To all nations beginning in Jerusalem. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, I don't believe that Jesus' desire was for the disciples to just create a, a church denomination that was committed, that made a commitment to planting a church in every known nation of that uh, era, um, and and that they were going to do that in the next five years. I don't think Peter and John were to be found sitting behind a desk, looking at a map, saying, all right, well, we've got one in in, in Jerusalem here, we've got one in Samaria, Um, that bloke that Philip met took one to Ethiopia, so he's our church planting guy in Ethiopia, Paul, and he's an absolute machine, he's pretty much got the Roman world covered. Uh, So by my calculations, we've got so-and-so number of nations left, and then I guess Jesus is just going to come back after that. 
I don't think that it's quite that formulaic. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that his disciples are to take the news of the gospel everywhere. Everywhere. Not with some wooden definition of who's a nation and who's not a nation and where we already have a church and where we don't have a church, but with an eagerness to share the gospel with people all over the world. Jesus says, start here, go everywhere. That's what he means by to the nations beginning in Jerusalem. Now, the universality of the missionary task was creatively summed up in a prayer by one of my children when they prayed, Dear Lord, would you please let the gospel spread to the corners of the earth just like a sandwich? Now, that is a prayer prayed by a little girl who knows both the proper way to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich (laughs) and the scope of the Great Commission. So the mission is to share the gospel with everyone, and we should stop and reflect for a moment on the beauty of the fact that that is God's heart, that God's heart is a heart for the gospel to go to every single person, that the gospel is to be shared with everyone, that the salvation that Jesus offers and the peace that Jesus purchased for us are not only for certain types of people, but for all people. That it's not exclusively for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, as we see throughout the book of Acts. That it's not just for the wealthy or the well-connected, but also for the poor and the forgotten. That the gospel is not only good news for people of a particular skin color or with certain degrees and levels of education or who live in a certain proximity to important places but that the gospel is good news for all races, for all men and women, educated or not, and for all places, whether or not they've been plotted on a map and considered important. Whether they're in cities or jungles or frozen tundra, God cares about the hearts of the inhabitants who live there. And it is his desire that the gospel would go to them. Well, now some of you are looking at your watches and thinking, hey, he just gave us the answer to the question. We've still got 30 minutes left. What's he planning to do for the rest of it? To which I would say, hold your horses. I've got another verse. (laughs) So look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Where Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here Jesus speaks once again of the scope of his mission and he tells his disciples where they are to go. Starting with the city that they are dwelling in as he's telling them these things. And says that it should go to that city, it should go to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria and also to the end of the earth. And each of these locations helps us to define the missionary task helps us to define the missionary task, but not because they're like some sort of code. Like Jesus wanted us to hear Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, end of the earth as code for certain ways that we're supposed to do mission. 
Rather, I, I think that what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's laying out how the gospel would spread. In fact, this verse is the thesis statement of Acts, the book of Acts. And as we read the book of Acts, what we see is that the gospel goes in chapters 1 through 7 to Jerusalem and then from 8 to 12 to Judea and Samaria and from then on to the end of the earth. So it's it's a thesis statement for the book of Acts. It's Jesus saying, here's how it's going to spread and progress. But I do want to say that I think that there is things that we can infer from each of these categories that inform how it is that we are to be responsible in doing missions. So while it doesn't define all the ways necessarily and all the, all the resources and, and, and ways we should do missions, it does help us to make sure that we're doing it at least in the way that the original disciples were called to do it by going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. So let's start with Jerusalem. What could it have meant for the disciples to go to Jerusalem with the gospel? Well, it meant taking the gospel to the Jews. So the gospel was to go to the people who were of the same ethnicity as the disciples themselves. It was to go to people of the same culture as the disciples themselves. It was to go to the people who were familiar with the Jewish scriptures upon which Jesus revealed himself in Luke's commissioning. Remember, he opened the scriptures and showed all the ways that it pointed to him. And these scriptures were the the scriptures of the people in Jerusalem. They knew these scriptures. They knew this law. They knew the temple practices. This was a gospel that was for the people who were familiar to the disciples. But familiarity isn't always good for good reasons, right? If we think a little bit further, we think about, well, what happened in Jerusalem? Well, what happened in Jerusalem was that these people killed their Lord and Savior, right? They secretly arrested him. They had a trumped-up trial, they'd falsely accused, they wrongfully condemned, and they crucified their Savior. We have to remember that these are the very people that, that the disciples were hiding from, right? On the day of Jesus' resurrection, our last passage, they're hiding from these people behind locked doors in, in upper rooms, right? And these are the people that Jesus is saying first that you need to go to. This is who you need to take the gospel to the familiarity with their opponents wasn't to stop them from going to the city with the gospel. And as we read the book of Acts, we see Peter and John do that very thing. They go out boldly in the power of the Holy Spirit with the gospel. And they suffer for it, don't they? They're arrested, they're put in jail. And God is showing us in the book of Acts how his word cannot be contained because he miraculously delivers them from jail and the word continues to spread throughout that city. So what we could infer from the the command to go to Jerusalem is that the gospel is to go to those who are near us and who are like us. The gospel is to go to those who are near us and those who are like us. It's to go to those who share our own culture. It's to go to those who speak our own language, who grew up in our own neighborhoods, who run our city governments. It's to go to those who might say, like I heard the other day from the mayor of Warrenville, oh, you live on Lorraine Street? I grew up on Lorraine Street. Or you go to Grace Church of DuPage, I know Grace Church, my son runs cross country there. Or you graduated from Naperville North, so do I, so did I. What year did you graduate? Those are the people that we're to bring the gospel to. And we're supposed to do so even when we face local opposition. Now, by God's grace, local opposition is something we've largely been spared from in recent history. 
There are points in our history that we could point to when there's been opposition, but recently we've not had that, but that is something that we must keep in our minds, right? As we seek to reach people who are near us and like us, that when we face local opposition, as the disciples did, that that doesn't mean stop and go somewhere else. Keep going, keep going. Now this can be an intimidating task, can it? To reach those who are near us and like us. It can be intimidating, not because the group is foreign, but because it's familiar. We know these people. We see these people. We know the cultural climate that has produced the skepticism that keeps them out of our doors. We have a good idea as to why they've rejected Christ. And if we try to share the gospel with them and it doesn't go well, well, chances are good we're going to see them again. And how will that go? We're going to wave. We say hi. We're going to hide behind the watermelon stand and wait for them to leave the store. Familiarity can make gospel witness difficult. But on the other hand, you might say, but we know these people. Could that be our greatest asset in reaching them with the gospel? We live near these people. Could it be that our proximity give us, gives us the benefit of being able to play the long game with them and sharing life and Christ with them? We share a language with our neighbors. Don't let that point get past you. You speak the same language as the people who are near you. You share a culture with them. You share a history with them. Can you use what you know about them to share with them more effectively the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, I confess these reflections come out of my own time as a missionary turned pastor. So when you go on the mission field, you, you start from scratch, especially if you go to a different culture. You start from scratch linguistically and culturally. For us, going to Jerusalem we walked into a situation where historically this, this people's history was supercharged with animosity towards the very people who are around them. There's so many times that we as missionaries, we, we wanted to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them, but we could hardly get two words outside of our mouths before we'd, we'd stepped on someone's toes and said the wrong thing. Being a missionary is hard work to learn the history and the culture and the language. And it was when we, we moved back here to Warrenville and the Lord had used that time in Jerusalem to develop a missionary mindset in my own mind that I looked across the street and thought, oh my goodness, they speak English. It's awesome. <laughs> and the high schools they went to were similar to the high schools I went to and the country they live in is the country I grew up in. See the fact that you are well-equipped, well-equipped to share the gospel with your neighbors as the reason why we must go to them. We must go to those who are near us and like us. We must reach our city. Well, then Jesus tells the disciples to go to Judea and Samaria also. He says that there are to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. These were the regions that were around Jerusalem. And as we look at the story of Acts, we see that taking the gospel to the re these regions required the, the disciples to go to those who were still near them, rather near them in proximity, but quite different from them culturally. 
For example, to go to Samaria, it meant to go to the people that the Jews had long avoided. It's, it's known that they would travel around Samaria when going between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south, that they would opt for the three-day journey around rather than the shorter journey through. And the reason for that is that these Samaritans were the product of Jews who had intermarried with foreigners who had populated the land after the Assyrian exile. So they were, they were ethnically different from the Jews. And they weren't just ethnically different, they were also religiously divergent. They claimed that the God that they worshipped was the same God that the Jews worshipped, but that this God was to be worshipped on their mountain, Mount Gerizim, rather than at the temple in Jerusalem. And they took the Jewish scriptures and they accepted only the first five books and they rejected the rest. So you can imagine the climate of going there. At best, there was general dislike between the Jews and the Samaritans, but it'd be more accurate to say that there was a general hatred of one another. And yet Jesus is telling them, I want you to take the gospel to Samaria, to these people who are your opponents. Similarly, the ministry done in Judea in the book of Acts highlights that the disciples, when they went to Judea, they dealt with people who were different from them. And so we see Philip is picked up by the Holy Spirit and set down in Judea with an Ethiopian eunuch, a man from Ethiopia. And he gets to explain the gospel to this Ethiopian who comes from a different culture and a different ethnicity. Likewise, Peter is called when he goes to Judea to go to the uh, Roman centurion Cornelius. So a Gentile, the first Gentile convert is found in Judea. And that is who Peter is called to go to. And they both receive the gospel when it's shared with them. So as we see these examples in Acts, we might say when Jesus said, go to Samaria and Judea, and as we see the story unfold in the book of Acts, that, that what we're seeing is that we need to be aware of people who are near us and yet are different from us. Whether it's ethnic, ethnically different, religiously different, culturally different, these are the people that we are also called to reach. So how might we do this? Who might this be for us at Grace Church? Well, that's a bit of a sticky question, isn't it? Because if we're going to define who's different from us, we kind of have to define us, don't we? And if we're going to define us, we're always going to speak in terms of generalizations, aren't we? So we speak about ethnicities, if we speak about preferences, there's always going to be someone in the room who's like, uh, do you not see me? I've done that before, actually. I was in a, a grad school class at one point, and I ignorantly began a statement, well, we're all Western, uh, from the Western white world, and, and so, and I, I said something from there on out, and um, my Korean classmate <clears throat> gently cleared his throat next to me, and we were sitting in a circle, I remember, and I slowly turned my head and looked at him, and uh, the embarrassment was palpable on my face. Um, so I, I do not intend to make that same mistake, so we, when we speak of who we are, well, we're speaking in generalizations, aren't we? So be gracious. <laughs> But we could consider who is different from us. Who is it that we are called to go to that is near us but different from us? Well, one thing we could do is we could just look at our zip code and we could look at, look at recent census findings and find that our zip code is made up of uh, a population that is 63% white, 24% Hispanic, 4.5% black, and 8% other. And that the trend is that 
the white population will be decreasing over time and that all the other populations will be increasing. And so we might ask ourselves, I think this is a helpful way to phrase it, does our church reflect our community? Does our church reflect the community around us? And if not, then then who from that community would we identify as those who are different from us? And as we identify those who are different from us, we want to ask ourselves, what are we doing to bring the gospel to them? Does our heart burn for that community to be represented here at Grace Church of DuPage? Well, we could add to the ethnic diversity and thinking in terms of ethnic diversity um, other communities that, that are different from us that we could want to reach. So there's obviously a number of refugee communities around us. Many of you pass refugee communities on your way here, right? There's low-income communities. There's the incarcerated community at the DuPage County Jail. There's the special needs community scattered throughout our area. There's the community at the DuPage Convalescent Center. Different from us, perhaps, but near to us. Now, the point I'm making here is certainly not to suggest that we ought to create a program to reach every single one of these communities in our area that is different from us. The point is not to say, all right, we're going to whip you volunteers into shape, all right? You're going to volunteer until you bleed. (laughs) We know, actually, that our church is very given to volunteering. Now, we're already stretched a little thin with some of our present ministries. So the point is not, we need a program for that. The point is, do we realize that we're also called there? We're called to those who are different from us and who are near us. Well, in many ways, this can also feel like an intimidating assignment because the obvious reason is that they're different from us. It's hard to go to people who are different from you. They have a different culture. They have different experiences. We might not be able to relate to their life. They speak different languages, though chances are good that someone in their family probably speaks English because they live near us. And they might be slow to trust us. They might be slow to trust us. We might wonder, is it worth all that effort to try to go and build trust and to get in with this community so that they might know the gospel? But if we look at it another way, we could hear that we are called to be a people who care about the nations, and we could look around us and see all the ways that God has brought the nations to us and how the nations are on our front doorstep. And see that as as a gift from the Lord that we can go to the nations in a 20-minute car ride. That we don't have to fly to the other side of the world to fulfill that calling necessarily. We could also marvel at the fact that cities are so diverse. And there's so many different types of people around us. We could marvel at the fact that Jesus, Jesus' heart is for all people. And that as we reach out to people who are different from us, perhaps, perhaps the Lord would knit his own heart into our heart as we do so. A heart for people who are different from us. Well, to be a church that is faithful to the Great Commission, we must be faithful to bring the gospel to those who are near us but different from us. And we need wisdom to do that. We need to go into these communities ready to learn and listen and build trust long before we begin to assume we know all the ways that they need to change. Again, we need to play the long game, and by God's design, we're able to because we're neighbors. We can do that without even moving to another country. So 
Finally, Jesus says that the disciples are to go to the end of the earth. The book of Acts describes the beginning of this as Paul took the gospel to the Roman world and to people who were far away from home and far more different even from those found in Judea and Samaria. So as you look back on Judea and Samaria, as you see Philip sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, what was the, gospel, what was the Ethiopian eunuch doing when he shared the gospel with him? Well, he was reading the scriptures from the prophet Isaiah. And as Paul, or no, Peter, goes to the centurion, what does he find? He finds that the centurion was a God-fearer, that the people, the Jews around him, knew him to be a God-fearer. So as they were going out in that region, what they encountered were people who were familiar with the scriptures, who even knew the scriptures. And I think we'll encounter that also as we go out about to people who are different from us, but near to us. We'll find people who are like, yeah, we know about Christians. We know about churches. We're familiar, okay? We've got, we've got categories for what you are talking to us about. But as Paul goes to the ends of the earth, what we see Paul doing is we see him standing at Mars Hill, surrounded by idols and false gods, a god to the un, or an idol made to the unknown god. And Paul says, let me tell you about this unknown god that you worship. I think we can infer from that that as Paul went out, what he found was he found people who were far away and far more different from them than anyone that had been encountered thus far on the mission. And we can infer for ourselves that as we go out with the gospel to the ends of the earth, we will find people, we'll find that missions are missions to people who are also far away and very different from us. Um, I got ahead of myself there, so let me back up for a minute here. This calling to the ends of the earth teaches us something helpful. It teaches us that the religion that we're a part of, the faith that we ascribe to, the, the mission that we are on, is not a mission to gather everybody to a central location. Okay? Ours is not a mission that is calling people back to Jerusalem to say, you know, go and get the people and bring them back. Or come to Jerusalem, establish a holy city where people will come to meet Jesus. Instead, ours is a mission that is constantly spread through messengers who would take the message out, who are going out to the people. We learn that no matter how much work there's to be done then with the people who are near us, we must never allow that work to keep us from praying for and raising up and sending out some from among us to take the gospel to the people who are far away from us, both in distance and in culture. And this might not make sense to us at first. I think John Piper is helpful on this front in his book, um, Let the Nations Be Glad, in explaining why it may not make sense originally to us as to why we would leave here to go there with the gospel. And he does it by using an analogy of two sinking ships. He says, imagine that there's two sinking ships and you have a lifeboat. And your lifeboat is much closer to one ship than it is to another ship. Would it really make sense for you to take that lifeboat and leave the people who are drowning next door in order to go to people who are drowning on the other side of the ocean? Would that make sense? And humanly speaking, we might say, not really. So we have to understand, why would Jesus call us when the need is so great in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria 
to also be people who go to the ends of the earth? And here's the answer. The answer is because God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. The answer is that God prophesied through the prophets a day when all nations would worship him in heaven. It's because God's goal, as testified to in the book of Revelation, is a goal to gather to himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the reason we leave those who are nearby to witness to those who are far away is because the very heart of God is not only that the most number of people would come to worship him, but that people from every tribe and language and people and nation would worship before his throne. And Piper explains it well when he says, God's will for missions is that every people group be reached with the testimony of Christ and that a people be called out for his name from all nations. It may be that this definition of missions will in fact result in the greatest number of white-hot worshipers for God's Son. But that remains for God to decide. Our responsibility is to define missions his way and then obey. Well, it's not hard to come up with reasons for why many consider this to be the most difficult element of Christ's commission to fulfill. This calling to leave our families and our friends and our homes and our culture to go to a place that is foreign and where we must begin from scratch relationally and linguistically and spiritually and culturally with the people we aim to serve and reach. If we're to do this well, we must take the enormity of the task to heart and not expect to make lasting change by taking shortcuts. We must give ourselves to the task of learning languages and learning cultures and learning histories. We must do so with humility, playing the long game. We must build trust. We must seek out inroads for the gospel. We must commit to long-term missions and respect the time that is required for trust to be earned and ground to be gained for the gospel. We must learn to do ministry that affects long-term change, lasting change in the hearts of the individuals that we are reaching and then is able to spread and reproduce from those individuals to others within their community. We can't commit ourselves to ministry that aims to produce quick numbers, quick numbers that look good back home but do not last. So between the commissions that we receive from Jesus in Luke's two books, we can clearly see that our calling is a calling to go everywhere with the gospel and that includes at least the people who are near us and similar to us, who are near us and different from us, and people who are far from us. And so different from us that we may not even know how to begin with bringing them the gospel, but whose very existence causes us to seek God's help to provide a way to share his good news with them. So that's what we get from our two passages from today. And in the next two points, I'd like us just to ask, how do we take that, that God's word says, and do it here and do it here? Okay, so that's the point of the next two so first, how do we plan to get it there? How do we, as a church, plan to get the gospel to where we should take it? Another way of saying this is, what is our philosophy of outreach here at Grace Church of DuPage? And that's a question I'd like to answer by, by giving three uh, answers to it, 
three elements of our philosophy of outreach that helps us, I think, to be responsible as a church with carrying out the Great Commission to those who are near us and like us, near us and different from us, and far from us, and far more different from us. And the first point would simply be to say that uh, as our philosophy, we are committed to doing both local outreach and global outreach. We must be committed to doing both local outreach and global outreach if we're to be faithful to Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that I think we're necessarily doing both, either one of these perfectly or that we have no room to grow in these areas. But by God's grace, we've been able to engage both locally and globally over the history of this church. And we must continue to do that. We must continue to do that. And it must never grow tired of it. We must never grow tired of asking the question, are we being faithful to bring the gospel to our neighbors? And are we being faithful to bring the gospel to the nations? Those two questions must burn inside us. The second way that we might talk about how we're going to fulfill our philosophy of outreach is that we aim to fulfill the Great Commission by doing local outreach through what we've come to call organic outreach. Local outreach. So what's our, what's our local philosophy? How are we going to reach the people near us? The concept of organic outreach comes from a book that we've been studying as a staff entitled Organic Outreach by Kevin Harney. It's a book that you can find in our library if you would want to check it out and read it for yourself. It's one of the books that I brought with me down to Atlanta as uh, my family was down there with our in-laws, my in-laws, um, to read as, as I aimed to answer that question, how am I going to be a missions pastor that is faithfully helping us to do local outreach? And it was a book that I found very helpful. And one of the things that caught my eye was a chapter in which Harney explained that while many churches prioritize outreach by having an outreach committee, this was not an approach that he recommended. I thought, this is so interesting. Why would you not recommend having an outreach committee? As I've been going through old files, we, had, we used to have a salt and light committee that was largely a local outreach committee. Why would you not want an outreach committee? And he explained the problem with an outreach committee is that when you have an outreach committee that heads up your local outreach ministry, you communicate to your church that outreach is just one of your ministries. It's one of the ministries among the many ministries that your people can choose to be engaged in. So for the person who chooses children's ministry, they may not feel compelled to do what the outreach ministry is doing because they're already volunteering in the children's ministry. And for the person who's in the choir ministry, when the outreach conflicts with the choir practice, well, naturally, you would go to choir practice rather than participate in outreach. Can you see the problem? We can't set up outreach as one of our ministries alongside all the others. So what should we do? Well, instead of laying the task of outreach before a volunteer committee, what we've done is we've taken this topic of outreach and we've made it the focus of one staff meeting every month. As we gather the staff, those who are in charge of leading each one of our ministries and orchestrating the running of this church body, we've said we are going to talk about outreach at least once a month. And we're going to do so by asking two questions. The first question is, how can we, how can we around the table be more engaged in outreach personally? 
Now, if I made you uncomfortable by asking you last week to to engage in a gospel-oriented conversation over the next three weeks, just imagine what it's like to be on our staff. I mean, they have to answer that question every month. Every month, we have to look across the table and say, how are you doing at growing in your own personal outreach? And the second question we ask is, how can we lead our ministries in such a way that they are aimed not only to reach people within the church, but also people who are outside the church? Each of our ministries. By asking these hard questions, and they are hard, we hope to infuse a heart for outreach in ourselves first, in each ministry leader and also in our ministries, with the expectation that by doing so, the Lord will cause that heart to spread from ministry leaders to ministry volunteers, and from ministry volunteers to ministry participants, and from ministry participants to classrooms and dog parks and conference tables and jail cells and coffee shops and basketball courts and street corners and river walks and to the ends of the earth. Does that make sense? Organic outreach. We realize that we have to own this if we want it to spread. And just so you know, it doesn't always have to go in that direction. If you're like, well, I'm just going to wait until it's going to come down to me and then I'll do outreach. It can go the other direction too. We need help. You can be like, I... We have to reach these people. Please push it the other direction. Lead it up to the, the ministry leaders. We want a heart of outreach to grow in this church. That's how we aim to do outreach organically. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't develop organized efforts that target particular groups, like our sports ministry does, our special needs ministry does. It doesn't, it's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it has to be super organic, so like, Nothing organized. We're not going to organize anything. It's not the point. We can do that. But what it does mean is that we aren't going to take our sports ministry and our special needs ministry and say, check, local outreach, we're doing it. I say, yeah, these are two manifestations of it. But it has to be manifested in each one of our ministries and in each one of our hearts. As we turn to global outreach, we ask, well, what's the philosophy behind global outreach? And the one thing I'd like to highlight from our global outreach is that we are committed to supporting like-minded missionaries in fewer numbers and at higher amounts financially. Fewer numbers and higher amounts financially. Why would we do that? Well, the reason is because we know global outreach to be hard. We know global outreach to be hard. It is a work that requires great sacrifice, great patience, and great amounts of time. And as such, it's a work that requires great support. And while much of that is financial support, there is also a great need for spiritual and relational support as well. And we believe that it is the role of the local sending church to provide as much of that support to the missionaries as they can, to the missionaries that have been sent out from them. And when we were on the mission field, I can tell you that one of the hardest but most rewarding things we did was send out update letters. And the reason it was hard was because, number one, you had all this other stuff that you were trying to keep up with, and you, and you felt this pressure, like, you gotta, we got to get the update letter out. But it was hard because ministry was slow going. And, and you're sitting before your computer thinking, what am I going to tell these people? Like, what have I accomplished? Where are the numbers? Where are the numbers? 
And so it was hard, and, and you had to look for, what, what is the Lord doing? What, where is he at work? It was hard to come up with that report. But it was rewarding. It was so rewarding because after I would push send and it would go to 200 supporters, the next two or three days were filled with responses from people who loved us, telling us that they were praying for us, that they cared about us, that it was so good to hear from us, that they, they, they love getting updates so that they can better pray for us and cheering us on. Missionaries need that. They need a church family that they know is behind them. They need people who are committed to praying for them. They need to know that no matter how long they're gone on their assignment, that they won't be forgotten. They need fellow Christians in their lives who will check in on them and remember their anniversary and care about their kids' birthdays and baptisms. And in addition to a relational support network, missionaries need elders. They need shepherds. They need men who consider it their God-given responsibility to care for the missionaries' eternal souls, to keep them accountable to pray for them, to serve, for them, serve them, to suffer for them, to counsel them, and to love them until the day that they hand them over to another board of elders, God willing, the elders that they've been working to raise up overseas, or until they entrust them into their eternal home with the ultimate shepherd under whom all elders are just under shepherds. And so we state in our philosophy that we want to support less missionaries at higher financial amounts. Because by doing so, by having less missionaries, we can focus our relational energy and our shepherding energy on the right amount of people, the people that we can actually shepherd well. To do otherwise is irresponsible. If, if our goal was to get a map with the most number of faces on that map by sending each one $50 a month, we would be doing a disservice to the missionary community. We don't want to do that. We want to support less, and we want to support them at higher amounts because by doing so, we save the missionary the task of having 10 supporting churches that they have to visit every time they come back to the United States. We want them to feel embedded in a church community. When they are home, they want, we want them to be home. We want them to be able to be here, to be loved, to be cared for, to be built up and encouraged for when they are sent back out. A final question, how can I help? What should each individual do in response to this message? And here's what I would say. Begin local, but burn global. Begin local, but burn global. We have to begin local. We have to begin by reaching across the street before we try to reach across the globe. Did you know that all outreach is local outreach. When you decide to be a missionary and get on a plane and fly to the other side of the world and learn a language and move into an apartment, do you know what your first thing is to do? Meet your neighbors. <laughs> Start local ministry. All ministry is local ministry. Learn it here. Begin it here. Don't think that because you didn't do ministry here, you're going to magically be able to do local ministry when you hop on a plane and become a missionary over there. Begin local. Care about your neighbors. Be equipped, if the Lord would ever call you into global missions, by learning it here and doing it now. 
and start with that challenge that I mentioned last week. But we also need to burn global because if God's mission is to redeem for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, then that must be our mission too. If God's heart burns for the nations, then God forbid that our hearts wouldn't. We have to burn global. So let's burn global through our prayers. If you haven't yet, pick up the prayer guide for our global outreach ministries outside. Start each day with your family by opening that up and praying for the missionaries that we support. Or pick a particular people group that you would long to see the Lord move in. Could be Ukrainians. Could be Russians. And ask the Lord regularly to do something there. And pray that God would raise up individuals from among us to go to those people. Ray Galinsky emailed me the other day and said, we have a training coming up at To Every Tribe. Who do you got in the woodworks that you can send down? And I said, Ray, we don't have anyone. And he said, well, you tell the people at Grace Church of DePage, don't make me come up there. <laughs> so there you are. You've been told. You've been told. We need to burn globally with our finances. We can give towards sending and supporting our missionaries. We can burn globally by just choosing one Grace Church of DuPage missionary that we are going to adopt and care for and send letters to and check up on. And we can burn globally by laying before the Lord our own lives and saying, Lord, make me ready to go if it is your will to send me. And we do pray that the Lord would raise up from among us more who would go out the Lord has been gracious to us as a church, but we don't look at the past and pat ourselves on the back. We look to the future and we say, Lord, who would you have us go to now, both locally and globally? And let's ask him to do that now in prayer. Lord, it is written that we aim to do local and global outreach, but we know that that is just words on a page if it is not for your Holy Spirit moving in our hearts to drive us out of our homes and into our neighborhoods and out of our neighborhoods and to the end of the earth. So Lord, we ask that you would develop us into a community of worshipers that bears much fruit. That you would do so as we aim to live and proclaim the gospel with authenticity and with passion. This is a work of God that we are asking. And so we ask you to do it in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.